11.07 p.m. Thursday, February 20th, 2003. Singer Jack Russell, guitarist Mark Kendall, bassist David Felice, drummer Eric Powers, and guitarist Ty Longley are on stage rocking out their song, Desert Moon. Great White road manager Dan Beakley touches two wires to a battery, setting off two sets of four pyrotechnic displays. The 15-foot-high shower of sparks ignites a small patch of soundproofing foam on the wall of the drummer's alcove. Within seconds, these flames will cause the deadliest nightclub fire in decades. I'm Tyler J. Thomas. I'm Tim Coleman. And I'm Jeff Moss. Together, we will explore and discuss these events from the perspective of over 30 years of combined locksmith and door hardware experience. This is The Three Tumblers. Now, The Station Nightclub Fire Part 2, Seconds of Fire. Fifteen seconds after. The pyrotechnic gerbs burned the last of their sparks right on time as they were designed to. 18 seconds after, the small flame above the drummer's alcove quickly spreads. 20 seconds after, people in the audience start to notice the fast-growing flame on the wall. Some think it's a part of the show. 36 seconds after, Thirty-seven seconds after, Officer Mark Knott of the West Warwick Police Department is standing just outside the front doors when he is suddenly rushed by the crowd trying to escape. They hit him so hard, he's knocked over the railing and lands on the hood of a parked car. Officer Knott manages to grab his radio, but the only transmission he can make at that moment is Stampede. Patrons are surging towards the exit hallway and chaos takes hold. 39 seconds after, people keep trying to rush out to safety. Remembering the way they came in, most try to leave back through the hallway leading to the main entry, but it quickly gets jammed up by nearly 400 people. A few decide to try and escape through the exit door near the stage, but a bouncer forces them away, saying the door is only for the band to use. 41 seconds after. Jack Russell makes a valiant attempt at extinguishing the fire with the contents of one bottle of water. After seeing how fruitless his efforts were, he flees through the stage door, along with other band members. 45 seconds after. Joe Christina takes a picture of Jeff Rader standing in front of the stage, complete with drink and cigarette in his hands. It was the last photo ever taken inside the station. Joe manages to escape through a window with only minor burns. Jeff got out too, but ran back inside to try to find his girlfriend, Becky Shaw. Neither would make it out alive. 50 seconds after, Rhode Island Fire and Building Codes had grandfathered the building from having a sprinkler system, 
but it still had a working fire alarm. It goes off, whether by the intense heat and smoke or someone pulling it is unknown. 60 seconds after, the crowd of people are desperately trying to make an escape. Most of them go back towards the main entrance. Those doors are within a small hallway, only 36 inches wide. The ticket taker's booth is at the end of that hall, opposite the doors, and has openings to its left and right that lead to the main bar area and the dance floor and stage areas. This passageway is clogged by people falling, pushing, and crawling their ways closer to the exit. 31 people die in this small space, just feet from safety. So yeah, this is obviously very well documented, uh, unlike a lot of the other fires because of you know more modern technology and so there's so much more information being able to break it down days minutes hours before and after it's happening is really like you're being there it makes it kind of hit even closer to home as somebody who did sound for a long time and you know, worked these type of events uh, makes you thankful that nothing ever happened in the venues that you were doing work at for sure and if you want to see anything we just heard about, um, you can. Because lo and behold, there was a local news cameraman at the station that night, uh, Brian Butler. He's a local news cameraman for WPR-TV, and he filmed every bit of what we just heard from Great White taking the stage to the Gerbs igniting to the start of the fire, everything. And you can see it. It's all over YouTube. And like Jeff said, it's, uh, you know, with technology, it's an incredible piece of footage because it really encapsulates you know, our entire first six series of season two, if you think about it, fires spreading incredibly fast, panic happening, and people just trying to escape. So if you've never seen it, it's it's very hard to watch, but if you want to see what really goes on when a fire starts in a crowded area, that's, a, that's the perfect piece of footage to watch. That footage really does a great job of showing uh, how the crowd moves and towards that hallway which the hallway at the front of the building is a tiny little choke point it's only three feet wide and you've got hundreds of people trying to rush out through that hallway packing and just crowding each other knocking each other to the floor and not by intention but that's just the way that it happens in those first few moments when the crowd does manage to get out those front main doors they come out at such speed that they actually knock the police officer backwards over the railing and he lands on the hood of a patrol car that's the mass of force that we've talked about when people are in this panic and they are moving with such speed and such blindness to their surroundings they'll knock people over and not even realize it and in part one we talked kind of mostly about the layout but you got to realize as tim just mentioned that police officer that was knocked over the rail as soon as you exited that door maybe two or three feet in front of you was another wall in this case it's a rail so you had to either go left or right you couldn't just keep going out so that slowed things down as well i'm sure but uh once you got out of the building the the layout really didn't do you any favors either 90 seconds after. By this time, there was less than 1% oxygen in the building. 
normal breathing air contains at least 21%. Also present is hydrogen cyanide, a byproduct of the foam burning. The fire continues to consume everything it can. The smoke is so thick that it's just inches off the floor. Two minutes after. Inside the station, temperatures are now over 1,830 degrees Fahrenheit. The flammable gases in the smoke, like carbon monoxide, are superheated. The heat is so intense that the few people left alive in the building and those who aren't alive burst into flames. Between the intense heat and combustible gases contained in the smoke, a flashover happens, incinerating everything in its path. Three minutes after. Firefighters at the West Warwick Fire Station Number 4 are alerted. Over the radio, the dispatcher tells crews, quote, building at the station. Attention engines 4, 1, 2, 3, ladder 1, battalion 1. Respond to the station on Coesed Avenue for report of a fire. Engines 4, 1, 2, 3, ladder 1, battalion 1. Respond to the station on Coesed Avenue for report of a fire. Police are on scene reporting this fire at this time, 2310. Five minutes after, Lieutenant Roger St. Jean gets on the radio and reports heavy fire showing in an attempt to try and save those trapped in the front entrance. He aims a stream of high-pressure water directly into that area. Six minutes after, the last known survivors escape the building as flames are now shooting out from the top and sides. So going back to the footage that we just talked about, uh, what we're just going to call the Butler film from now on just to make things simpler. But I had to re-watch that, unfortunately, a lot of times in preparation and research for this episode because things happen so fast. You, you can easily miss things. So you got to go back and look for certain things as you're trying to figure out what you want to see of it. But we're talking about just minutes after the fire starts, and you can see flames shooting probably... 10, 15 feet or higher above the roof. I mean, that's just how big that fire got and how quick and fast in a hurry it spread. Yeah, I, I haven't watched the video. I don't think I want to. Five minutes is a long time for a fire. That was back in the 40s. So imagine even now, seconds, and how with all these flammable materials and pyrotechnics and things like that, in a very small space, nothing, nothing good can happen. The hydrogen cyanide gas that was produced as a byproduct of the foam burning is actually one of the gases that they used to use in the gas chamber for capital punishment here in the U.S. So you have an entire building and the air around you has less than 1% oxygen. Plus you have this very, very poisonous gas that is being produced. It's impossibly difficult to breathe if at all. I also want to note and give a shout out to all the dispatchers that were involved in this incident. Uh, having been involved in several large-scale incidents, including an industrial fire as a dispatcher, these folks kept their cool, they kept their calm, they got the information where it needed to go. So, big shout out to those guys. 
Yeah, one little last point. Uh, if you do want to watch the footage, at one point, the cameraman walks around to the drummer's alcove door and looks inside. And even though from the outside you can see those big flames 10, 15 feet tall above the roof, when he looks in, you can't hardly see anything because of all of that smoke. You can see, you know, a little bit of residual fires happening around the door frame, stuff like that. But once he pans in there, it's just pitch black. Ten minutes after. A 911 call comes into the West Warwick Police Department from Bridget Sinetti and her friend Katie O'Donnell. They were in the ladies' room when the flames had erupted. Neither woman survived the disaster. Bridget's cell phone was recovered and showed the last number dialed was 911. 23 minutes after, officials at the Rhode Island Medical Examiner's Office receive word that a mass casualty incident is in progress. They start mobilizing immediately. 38 minutes after, Across the street from the station was the Coesed Inn. Rescue workers took over the parking lot and began using it as a command center. Victims were walked, carried, or hauled over to undergo triage by medics. James Paolucci, who owned the inn, along with his employees, kept a steady supply of water, ice, and food to victims and rescue workers throughout the night. 45 minutes after. The new governor's chief of staff calls Donald Carcieri down in Florida, interrupting his vacation for the second time that night. After hearing how serious the situation is, he gets on the horn to the Florida State Police to get an emergency transport back home that night. 54 minutes after. Rhode Island Hospital puts out an alert to all staff that burn victims are on the way in and that all available personnel needed to report. 200 doctors and nurses, along with hundreds of other support staff, all rush to the hospital. EMS, hospitals, and 911 centers throughout the region were all put on alert about the high numbers of burn victims. Although medical helicopters were few in numbers at the time, birds from Boston MedFlight, Hartford Hospital, and even the U.S. Coast Guard were all enlisted to help transport the injured. In researching for this episode, I actually uh, got to chat a little bit uh, via Facebook with one of the dispatchers for Boston who was working the night of the fire. And he was explaining to me that the uh, medical helicopters were not in great numbers like we see them today, so they were having to be resourceful and call different places. Also, the communications across the board between the 911 centers, uh, hospitals, EMS agencies, fire departments, that was just amazing. And the staff to come in uh, just at a moment's notice in the middle of the night, you get literally hundreds of people rushing in to come and help these victims. Uh, patients were being transported outside of the state. You know, obviously Boston is the next closest 
large city. Providence uh, is also very close, uh, but they were going even farther than that, from what I understand. The local resources at that command center footage actually shows people being transported in the back of pickup trucks. Yeah, I mean, that, and that, again, is part of the mass casualty incident response system and how well it works when it's done correctly and how they practiced and give them a lot of credit for having the resources and making it happen and saving as many people as they could. 90 minutes after. 31-year-old Raul Mike Vargas had kept his cool when the fire started and made his way towards the main entrance. As the crowd crushed in around him, he was forced down to the floor. Curling into a fetal position and keeping his hands in front of his face, the pile of victims on top of him helped shield him from the smoke and flames. As he heard the firefighters making their way into the building, he reached up and grabbed the boot of one rescuer. As the firefighter pulled him out, Mike alerted him to a woman that was just behind him who was also still alive. Although she didn't make it, Mike survived with just minor burns. Two hours after, Fire officials and police officers are already starting to interview survivors and witnesses. One of the people they speak with is Great White's road manager, Daniel Beakley, who says that he was the one who ignited the pyrotechnics on the stage. Daniel says that the club owner, Michael Jardarian, gave him permission to. Three hours after, Jeffrey Dardarian is now being questioned and says that Great White never asked for permission, and even if they had, he wouldn't have let them use the girds on stage. Regardless, neither the club nor the band had a license for fireworks. Six hours after. Across the street, the Crown Plaza Hotel turned into a staging and recovery area. The American Red Cross set up heated tents for families coming to the scene to learn if their loved ones had survived. Managers and staffers from the hotel also jumped into action and prepared food for rescue workers, survivors, and family members. Seven hours after. On his way back from Florida, Don Carcieri was changing planes in North Carolina when an airline staff member recognizes him as the governor of the state where the horrible nightclub fire is happening. Television viewers all over the world are seeing footage from the scene. So yeah, that raises a very good point as far as not being legally allowed to have pyrotechnics and fireworks. And I don't know the answer to this if anybody was charged criminally Sounds like they should have been. You know, that's uh, violating laws, negligence, etc. Um, you know, akin to doing a job without a permit and then the building breaks down. Something really, really bad happens. Um, yeah, that's crazy. It's a, getting into literally he said, she said, and nobody wins in a situation like that. That is for sure. Yeah, unfortunately, I mean, we've seen that in the past. Um, 
specifically Iroquois, but uh, we're going to see more about that as we progress with the story. But uh, yeah, it became he said, she said, because nobody wanted to be at fault for this. And I have a a sneaky suspicion that everybody was at fault for it, Um, but they were trying to mitigate blame as best as possible or put it all off on one person and absolve yourself in the process. But uh, they all messed up here. Also, another big shout out, the local businesses right nearby, the the two hotels are pitching in, providing food and water for rescuers. Having been on scenes like that before, in the middle of the night after you've been doing physical, grueling work, having a nice warm sandwich and cup of hot chocolate or coffee or whatever is really, really nice. It gives you that extra boost to keep going. And I just want our listeners to look up the Dateline NBC interview with uh, Stone Phillips interviewed Mike Vargas. That guy is just really, really cool. He lost his father at an early age. He had a 10-year-old son at the time of the station nightclub fire. And the way that he survived uh, was just really inspiring. So folks listening... Take a moment and go check out that video. We will have links to it in our source material, and we will share it to our social media as well. Eight hours after. In the pre-dawn hours, the helicopters drafted into service as medical units have decreased in numbers. Coroner's vans and hearses replace ambulances. The Federal Aviation Administration declares a temporary no-fly zone over the site of the station to keep news choppers from interfering with recovery operations. At this point, cops start running license plates on cars in the lot to see who might still be unaccounted for. 12 hours after. At 11.15 a.m., Father Robert Marciano chaplain for West Warwick Police and Fire Departments, performed last rites for the last body pulled from the rubble. After receiving the pager notification soon after the fire started, the father had been doing this for hours. Firefighters removed their helmets and bowed their heads, taking a moment before placing the victim in a body bag. 23 hours after. Governor Karcheri is now on the scene and updates the media that there are 96 confirmed deaths and over 100 injured. He promises that he will give updates twice a day for as long as it takes to get answers. A promise he keeps. I have experience as both a dispatcher and police officer. There are some times when you run a plate and you don't want the information to be read back on the radio, like in the case of fatal car accidents. I wasn't able to find any recordings of police officers running plates over the radio at this incident. So I wonder if they were using uh, either their cell phones or using in-car computers to do this. Either way, is something that they had to do to try to account for everybody. Also, I want to give props to Governor Karcheri. He was a master at public relations with this incident. 
coming back all the way from his family vacation at Disney World uh, to the scene of the fire in the same night, like as fast as he could, really shows leadership. And he did continue to give uh, media updates every morning at 10.30 a.m. and then another one in the evening when he had enough information to share with people. And he did this for days and weeks. Say what you want, I, you know, here in Ohio during COVID, I mean, there were daily briefings with the governor and the health department and stuff like that. And, you know, they were very good at sharing information. Um, and I think that that's critical. So, you know, props to all that uh, with the governor of Rhode Island and also, you know, the chaplain or you know, rabbi, whoever it is, that's a very, very, very tough job. And those guys, you know, they're not only dealing with the victims, but they also deal with supporting and helping the responders care for the victims if there's a victim's family or something there they could tend to them but also you know helping the the first responders process the the stuff that they go through that's got to be the most difficult part of the job two days after award-winning reporter Jeffrey Derdarian was now in the news for all the wrong reasons. In a press conference, he states, many people didn't make it out, and that's a horror that will haunt my family for the rest of our lives. Four days after. Governor of the state of Rhode Island, Donald Carcieri, orders that all 1,712 places of assembly in the state be inspected for fire hazards. This includes churches, theaters, restaurants, and nightclubs in and around each of the 39 cities and towns. Five days after. In the hours since the fire, a team of medical examiners, pathologists, and their assistants worked to perform autopsies and identify the victims. So far, 96 bodies have been recovered from the pile of rubble. Over a third of the victims are positively identified by tattoos. With investigators still working to determine the cause of the inferno, they question the last person to inspect the station just days before. Dennis LaRock, known as Rocky to some, explained his passing of the station's annual fire inspection to renew its liquor license as not being a full building code inspection. Instead, his focus was on the four E's, as he put it. Extinguishers, emergency lighting, exit signs, and egress. As for the last E on the list, Dennis said that he was, quote, blinded by anger about the inward swinging door just to the right of the drummer's alcove. In a 2021 interview with CBS's 48 Hours journalist Jim Axelrod, Jeff Dardarian stated that the inward swinging door was removed for fire inspections, but then would be reinstalled for loud nights. He also said, quote, there was no lock on it, nothing to keep people from opening it, end quote. Oh, that makes it all right. Couldn't be locked, yeah, okay. It seems like every episode, every series in season two, we've talked about how inward swinging doors have hampered escape efforts. It's become 
an inside joke with us and our our chat thread because we say it so much. It seems like every episode, multiple times, we're talking about inward swinging doors. Uh, just because it doesn't have a lock on it, doesn't matter. If you've listened to any of the series before, you know why, but uh, rush of people coming towards the door, uh, it's easier to push out as opposed to, hey, everybody back up while I pull this out. No, it can't be done. Yeah, that's uh, like people, you know, oh, uh, well, I removed the extension cord when the fire department comes in, and I just plug it back in. If they're not showing up to uh, as a surprise like they should be, they're not going to catch these things. So club inspections are a very real thing, especially when the business has drawn the attention of local authorities, such as the police department, uh, in the case of the station with the noise complaints from neighbors. Now, once you have that, you can wind up on something called an abatement list or a nuisance or crime abatement list. And basically what happens once you are on that notice, then authorities can come in at any time, any point, and you have law enforcement, but you also have fire inspectors, fire marshals, you have food preparation safety inspectors, you have just every type of government agency that can be involved with any part of this business shows up randomly and unannounced. So I was really surprised when Jeff Tardarian said to 48 Hours that they would take the door down for fire inspections and then put it back up whenever it was going to be a quote-unquote loud night. Every night is a loud night for a nightclub. Six days after. The state of Rhode Island convenes a grand jury on the request of Attorney General Patrick Lynch in order to investigate the tragedy for any criminal acts. This includes subpoenas for the Jardarian brothers, Dennis LaRocque, and great white manager Daniel Beakley. Seven days after. Federal Emergency Management Agency Director Michael D. Brown who had been appointed as director only weeks before, decides that Governor Karcheri's request for federal aid at the station fire scene does not meet the standards for such a request. Eight days after. Lord, help me to explain why there are 97 angels at your door today. These are the lyrics written by singer and songwriter Joe Silva in an attempt to reconcile his feelings about the fire. Over the years, he would return to the scene to perform this song. Twelve days after. In the inches of snow that had fallen around the scene over nearly two weeks since, family members and friends have started a makeshift memorial, pinning pictures of their deceased family members on the temporary fence around the building's charred remains, and placing small wooden crosses in the ground nearby. Parents, children, spouses, dates, and friends all mourn the loss of their family, their persons. With many funerals and services having already taken place, 
the only emotion that is nearly as strong as their grief is their desire for someone to be held accountable. Executive producer is Tyler J. Thomas. Technical producer is Jeff Moss. Writer and editor is Tim Coleman. Additional resources provided by Anthony. Find this episode and others along with our source material at 3tumblers.com. This has been a 3Tumblers production. Copyright 2024. All rates reserved.